This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Water Child by Edwidge Dantica, which was published in the magazine in September of 2000. Word circulated quickly that Nadine Marie Osnak was not a friendly woman. Water Child was chosen by Juno Diaz. Diaz's most recent book is the novel The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2008. He has published eight short stories in The New Yorker, several of which were included in his collection Drown. He's a professor of creative writing at MIT, and he joins me from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Hi, Juno. Hey, Deborah. How's everything? Good. So when, when Edwidge came on the podcast, she chose one of your stories, and now you've chosen one of hers. So what's up with you two? I know. We have a, <laughs> we have a Hispaniola conspiracy going on. It's like full-scale Caribbean collusion. Well, now, since you bring it up, she was born in, Edwidge was born in Haiti, and you were born in the Dominican Republic, and both of you moved to the U.S. as children. You've both set fiction back home, and obviously there's this geographical and cultural proximity between you. Do you think that there's also an affinity in your work? I mean, of course, I always would love to be identified with such a remarkable talent as we, so I will say yes, <laughs> yes, yes. But, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that this story makes most clear is I think both of us are interested in different ways through different strategies in the idea of silence and of folks not being able to say, not being allowed to say or incapable of saying the things they wish to. That's something that uh, is sort of central to the story that we're going to hear, which seems to have been an important story for you. You you included it in an anthology. You edited The Beacon Best of 2001, and you picked it right away for the podcast. And I, I was interested because, you know, Edwidge has written so many stories about immigrants, about Haitian immigrants in New York. And I wondered why this one was was so crucial for you. This story appeared for me at a very important time both as an artist and as an immigrant, I was going back and forth a lot to Santo Domingo. I was dealing with my declining grandparents who I care for very deeply. And, you know, as an artist, I was really starting to wrestle with all the concepts and ideas that were going to make it into my novel. And this story came and it was really extraordinary. It was just like a light in a place where you would never expect it and where you never realized you most needed it. That's wonderful. We can, we can get into the details after we hear the story. Um, Waterchild, it's a pretty straightforward story in the way it's written. Do you think there's anything in particular people should listen for while you're reading it? It's hard to understand the remarkable craft and labor that is required to make a story seem effortless or to make a story seem unornamented. In fact, a story like this, from a writerly point of view, is far more difficult than something elaborate or something very, you know, gothically ornamented. It's just a remarkable piece. We'll talk some more after the story. Now here's Juno Diaz reading Water Child as it was published in The New Yorker in 2000. The letter came on the first of the month, as usual. It was written, as most of them were, in near-calligraphic style, in indigo blue ink, on see-through airmail paper. 
Masher Nadine. We are so happy to have this occasion to put pen to paper to write to you. How are you? All is well with us, grâce à Dieu, except your father, whose health is, as always, unreliable. Today it is his knees. Tomorrow it will be something else. You know how it is when you are old. He and I both thank you for the money you sent last month. We know it is difficult for you, but we are grateful. This month your father hopes to see yet another doctor. We have not heard your voice in a while and our ears ache for it. Please call us. She signed it, your mother and father, who embrace you very tightly. Three weeks had gone by since the letter arrived, and Nadine still hadn't called. She had raided her savings to wire double the usual amount, but hadn't called. Instead, she took the letter out each day as she ate a tuna melt for lunch in the hospital cafeteria, where each first Friday for the last two years she had added a brownie to her meal for scheduled variety. Every time she read the letter, she tried to find something else between the lines— a note of sympathy, commiseration, condolence. But it simply wasn't there. The more time went by, the more brittle and fragile the letter became. Each time she held the paper between her fingers, she wondered how her mother had not torn it with the pen she'd used to compose each carefully inscribed word. How had the postal workers in both Port-au-Prince and Brooklyn not lacerated the thin page and envelope? And how had the letter not turned to dust while rubbing against the lining of the left pocket of her nurse's uniform during the bus ride to work, or in her purse and her locker in the artificial heat all day long? She carefully folded the letter once again and replaced it in her purse as one of her colleagues approached a small corner table by the window that she occupied in solitude for a whole hour each working day. The colleague, Josette, kissed her on both cheeks while fumbling in her pocket for lunch money. As Nadine's lunch hour was winding down, Josette's was just beginning. Nadine smiled both at Josette and to herself at this ability of Josette's to make an ordinary encounter feel so intimate, then turned her face to the view outside, to the brown buildings and their barred windows coated with a thin sheet of early January frost. She let her eyes linger on the nursing station of the psych ward across the alley and entertained a vision she often had of seeing a patient dive out of one of the windows. Would she leap out of her chair, run to the elevator down to the alley separating the two buildings, or would she simply sit there and finish the last quarter glass of her skim milk? Ms. Hines is back from ICU, Josette was saying. She's so saisy about not being able to talk that Dr. Vega had to give her a sedative. Nadine and Josette worked both ends of ear, nose, and throat and saw many post-op patients wake up bewildered to discover that their total laryngectomies meant that they would no longer be able to use their voices to communicate. No matter how the doctors and nurses prepared them, it was still a shock. Josette always gave Nadine a report on the patients when she came to take over the table. She was one of the younger Haitian RNs, one of those who came to Brooklyn in early childhood and spoke English with no accent at all, 
but she liked to throw in a Creole word here and there in conversation to flaunt her origins. Aside from the brief lunch encounters and times when one or other needed a bit of extra help with a patient, they barely spoke at all. I'm going now, Nadine said, rising from her seat. My throne is yours. When she returned to her one-bedroom condo in Canarsie that evening, Nadine was greeted by voices from the large television set that she kept turned on 24 hours a day. Along with the uneven piles of newspapers and magazines scattered between the fold-out couch and the floor-to-ceiling bookshelves in her living room, the television was her way of bringing voices into her life that required neither reaction nor response. At 32, she had tried other hobbies, jogging, journal writing, drawing, internet surfing, but these tasks had demanded either too much effort or too much superficial interaction with other people. She took off the white sneakers that she wore at work and remained standing to watch the last few minutes of a news broadcast. It wasn't until a game show had begun that she pressed the playback button on her beeping answering machine. Her one message was from Eric, her former beau, suitor, lover, the near father of her nearly born child. Allo, allo, hello, he stammered, creating his own odd pauses between Creole, French, and English, like the electively mute, newly arrived immigrant children whose worried parents brought them in for consultations, even though there was nothing wrong with their vocal cords. Haven't heard from you. He chose English. Long pause. Okay, bye. Whenever he called her now, which was about once a month since their breakup, she removed the microcassette from the answering machine and placed it on the altar she had erected on the top of the dresser in her bedroom. It wasn't anything too elaborate. There was a framed drawing that she had made of a cocoa-brown, dewy-eyed baby that could as easily have been a boy as a girl, the plump, fleshy cheeks resembling hers and the high forehead resembling his. Next to the plain wooden frame were a dozen now-dried red roses that Eric had bought her as they'd left the clinic after the procedure. She had once read about a shrine to unborn children in Japan, where water was poured over little altars of stone to honor them. So she had filled her favorite drinking glass with water and a small pebble, and had added that to her own shrine, along with a total of now three micro-cassettes with messages from Eric, messages she had never returned. That night, the apartment seemed oddly quiet in spite of the TV voices. She took out her mother's letter for its second reading of the day, ran her fingers down the delicate page, and reached for the phone to dial her parents' number. She had almost called many times in the last three months, but had lost her nerve, thinking that her voice might betray all that she could not say. She nearly dialed the whole thing this time. There were only a few numbers left when she put the phone down, tore the letter in two, then four, then eight, then countless pieces, collapsed among her old magazines and newspapers, and wept quietly. Another letter arrived at Nadine's house a week later. 
It was on the same kind of airmail paper, but this time the words were meticulously typed. The A's and O's, which had been struck over many times, created underlayers, shadows, and small holes within the vowel's perimeters. Ma cher Nadine, your father and I thank you very much for the extra money. Your father used it to see a doctor, not about his knees, but his prostate that the doctor says is inflamed. Not to worry, he was given some medications and it seems as if he will be fine for a while. All the tests brought us short for the monthly expenses, but we will manage. We would like so much to talk to you. We wait every Sunday afternoon, hoping that you will return to our beautiful routine. We pray that we have not abused your generosity, but you are our only child, and we only ask for what we need. You know how it is when you are old. We have tried to call you, but we are always greeted by your answering machine. In any case, we wait to hear from you, your mother and father, who embrace you tightly. The next day, Nadine ignored her tuna melt altogether to read the letter over many times. She did not even notice the lunch hour pass, and Josette was standing over her at the table sooner than she expected. Josette, like all the other nurses, knew not to ask any questions about Nadine's past, present, future, or her international-looking mail. Word circulated quickly from old employees to new arrivals that Nadine Marie Osnak was not a friendly woman. Anyone who had sought detailed conversations with her or who had shown interest in sharing the table while she was sitting there had met only with cold silence and a blank stare out to the psych ward where the winter frost was still clinging to the window bars. Josette, however, still occasionally ventured a social invitation since they were both from the same country and all. Some of the girls are going to the city after work, Josette was saying. A little bamboche to celebrate Ms. Hines' discharge tomorrow. No thanks, Nadine said, departing from the table a bit more abruptly than usual. That same afternoon, Ms. Hines began throwing things across her small private room, one of the few in the ward. Nadine nearly took a flower vase in the face as she rushed in to help. Unlike the other patients in the ward, Miss Hines was a non-smoker. She was also much younger, 25 years old. When Nadine arrived, Miss Hines was thrashing about so much that the nurses, worried that she would yank out the metal tube inserted in her neck and suffocate, were trying to pin her down to put restraints on her arms and legs. Nadine quickly joined in the struggle, assigning herself Ms. Hines' right arm, pockmarked from months of IVs in hard-to-conquer veins. Where's Dr. Vega? Josette shouted as she caught one of Ms. Hines' random kicks in her chest. Nadine lost her grip on the IV arm. She was looking closely at Ms. Hines' face, her eyes tightly shut beneath where her eyebrows used to be her thinner lower lip protruding defiantly past her upper one as though she were preparing to spit long distance in a contest, her whole body hairless 
under the cerulean blue hospital gown, which came with neither a bonnet nor a hat to protect her now completely bald head. The doctor's on his way, one of the male nurses said. He had a firm hold of Ms. Hines' left leg, but could not pin it down to the bed long enough to restrain it. Leave her alone, Nadine finally suggested to the others. They all looked up at her at the same time, their own exhaustion and frustration forcing them to release Ms. Hines' extremities. One by one, they slipped a few steps back to protect themselves. With her need to struggle suddenly gone, Ms. Hines coiled into a fetal position and sank into the middle of the bed. Let me be alone with her, Nadine said. The others lingered a while, as if not wanting to leave, but they had other patients to see to, so, one at a time, they backed out the door. Ms. Hines, is there something you want to tell us? Nadine lowered the bed rail to give Ms. Hines a limited sense of freedom. Ms. Hines opened her mouth wide, trying to force air past her lips, but all that came out was the hiss of oxygen and mucus filtering through the tube in her neck. Nadine looked over at the night table, where there should have been a pad and pen, but Ms. Hines had knocked them over onto the floor with the flower arrangements and magazines her parents had brought for her. Nadine walked over and picked up the pad and pen and handed them to Ms. Hines. I'm here, Ms. Hines. Go ahead. Ms. Hines grabbed the pad eagerly, scribbled down a few quick words, then held it up for Nadine to read. At first, Nadine could not understand the handwriting. It was unsteady and hurried, and the words ran together, but she sounded them out, one at a time, with some encouragement from Ms. Hines, who moved her head a few inches up and down when Nadine guessed correctly. I cannot speak, Nadine made out. That's right, Nadine said. You cannot express yourself the way you used to. Ms. Hines grabbed the pad again and scribbled another sentence. I am an elementary school teacher. I know, Nadine said. Why are they sending me home like this? We are sending you home, Nadine said, because we have done all we can for you here. Now you must work with a speech therapist. You can get an artificial larynx, a voice box. There are many options. The speech therapist will help you. It was a pep talk that Nadine hated giving to the patients, the you-will-make-it-after-all talk. That night at home, Nadine found herself more exhausted than usual. With a television movie as white noise, she dialed Eric's home phone number, hoping that she was finally ready to hear his voice for more than the 25 seconds her answering machine allowed. His wife answered the phone, and to avoid initiating a conversation, Nadine listened. She listened to the many hellos of the wife, and she listened to the wife's own television in the background, which was on a different channel than hers. She heard something drop, maybe a dinner plate that the wife was picking up from the family table after a meal. She listened to a young child's voice scream, Papi, papi, mommy broke something. And at last, she heard Eric's voice growing louder, moving closer to the phone, 
speaking gently to his wife in French. Qu'est-ce qu'il y a, chérie? Then she heard the transfer from the wife's breath to his, and she hoped that perhaps he would recognize her breathing on the other end of the line. But he said his own series of hellos and then hung up. She picked up the phone again to call him back to say something predictable like, It is time she knew. But maybe the wife already knew. So she decided to call her parents instead. Talking to them always made her wish for a life where children were parented even after they had married and moved into a house down the street. Ten years ago, her parents had sold everything they owned, had moved from what passed for a lower middle class neighborhood to one on the edge of a slum in order to send her to nursing school abroad. Ten years ago, she had dreamed of seeing the world, of making her own way in it. Ten years ago, she had desired her solitude more than anything. These were the intangibles that she had proposed to her mother, the seamstress, and her father, the camion driver, in the guise of a nursing career. This is what they had sacrificed everything for. But she always knew that she would repay them, and she had, with half her salary every month, and sometimes more. In return, what she got was the chance to parent them, rather than have them parent her. Talking to them, however, always made her wish to be the one guarded, rather than the guardian, to be reassured now and then that some wounds could heal, that some decisions would not haunt her forever. Mama, her voice immediately dropped to a whisper when her mother's came over the phone line, squealing with happiness. Papa, it is Nadine. For every decibel Nadine's voice dropped, her mother's rose. My love, we were so worried about you. How are you? We were so worried. I am fine, Mama. You sound cold. You sound down. We have to start planning again when you can come or we can come see you, as soon as Papa can travel. How is Papa? He is right here. Let me put him on. He would be very glad to speak with you. Suddenly, her father was on the phone, his tone calmer, but excited in its own way. We were waiting so long for this call, Cherie. I know, Papa. I'm sorry I haven't called. They never spoke of sad and difficult things there in these phone calls, of money or illness or doctor's visits. Papa always downplayed his aches and pains, which her mother would detail in the letters. There was no time for anything but joy. Events were relayed briefly, a list of accomplishments, no discussion of failures or pain, which could spoil moods for days, weeks, and months until the next phone call. Do you have a boyfriend? Her mother took back the phone. Nadine could imagine her skipping around their living room like a child's ball bouncing. Is there anyone in your life? I have to go, Manma. So soon? I work early tomorrow. I promise I will call again. The next day, Nadine watched as Ms. Hines packed her things and changed into a bright yellow oversized sweatsuit 
and matching cap while waiting for the doctor to come and sign her discharge papers. My mother bought me this hideous outfit, Miss Hines wrote on the pad, which was now half-filled with words, commands to the nurses, updates to her parents left over from the previous afternoon's visit. Miss Hines climbed up on the bedside closer to the door, her bony legs dangling. She reached up and stroked the protruding tip of the metal tube in her neck. Is someone coming for you? Nadine asked. My parents, she wrote. Good, Nadine said. The doctor will be here soon. Nadine spent half her lunch hour staring at the barred windows on the brown building across the alley, watching the psych nurses scribbling in charts and filing them, rushing to answer sudden calls from the ward. No one would ever get past the wall of nurses to reach the window and dive to the alley, she realized, unless it was a nurse with a blowtorch and a death wish. Josette walked up to the table earlier than usual, obviously looking for her. What is it? Nadine asked. C'est Miss Hines, said Josette. She would like to say goodbye to you. She thought of asking Josette to tell Miss Hines that she could not be found, but fearing that this would create some type of conspiratorial camaraderie between them, decided against it. Ms. Hines and her parents were waiting by the elevator bank in the ward. Ms. Hines was sitting in a wheelchair with her discharge papers and a white plastic bag full of odds and ends on her lap. Her father, a strapping, hulking man, was clutching the back of the wheelchair with moist, nervous hands, which gripped the chair more tightly for fear of losing hold. The mother, a plump, fleshy woman, whose height nearly matched the father's, looked as though she were fighting back cries, tears, a tempest of anger, barters with God. Instead, she fussed, trying to wrench the discharge papers and the white plastic bag from her daughter, irritating Miss Hines, who raised her pad from beneath the pile of papers and scribbled quickly, Nurse Osnak, these are my parents, Carol and Justin Hines. Nadine shook each parent's hand in turn. Glad to make your acquaintance, said the father. The mother said nothing. Thank you for everything, said the father. Please share our thanks with the doctors, the other nurses, everyone. The elevator doors suddenly opened, and they found themselves staring at the bodies that filled it to capacity the doctors and nurses traveling between floors, the walking patients from floors above them, the visitors. The Heinzes let the doors close and the others departed without them. Ms. Hines turned to an empty page toward the back of her pad and wrote, Goodbye, Nurse Osnak. Good luck, Nadine said. Another elevator opened. There were fewer people in it this time, and enough room for all the Heinzes and the discharge nurse. The father pushed the wheelchair, which jerked forward, nearly dumping Miss Hines face first into the elevator. The elevator doors closed behind them sharply, leaving Nadine alone facing a distorted reflection of herself in the wide, shiny metal surface. 
She thought of her parents, of Eric, of the pebble in the glass of water in her bedroom at home, all of those things belonging to the widened, unrecognizable woman staring back at her from the closed doors. That was Juno Diaz reading Water Child by Edwidge Danticut. A later version of the story was published in her collection The Dew Breaker, which is out in paperback by Vintage. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. But you know, one thing I find really interesting about this story is we spend the entire time inside Nadine's mind, and yet we are never told directly what she feels about anything. We have to pick it up from her actions, and we have to define what her emotions might be for ourselves. Do you think that's very purposeful on Edwidge's part? Well, certainly, certainly. You know, I I myself think that that's not a bad strategy yet. It's sort <laughs> of a, a reticence about affect that is very useful and in this story, I think, very productive. Because what it does is that it, in fact, welcomes our identification and engages our sympathies and compassions more than I think if it we filled in all those empty spaces. I mean, it's just you never know really, truly what she feels about Eric. And the only way you know what she feels about the child is through this shrine she's put together. But I think that's in some ways much more honest, because I would argue that Nadine herself is kind of blasted and doesn't know exactly how she feels about these things either. She knows it's like there's pain and that these things have shifted her life in important ways. But I think in some ways that journey of not understanding or not being able to read directly Nadine's feelings is the same journey the reader takes. I wonder, you know, I find myself wondering when reading it, what was the main driving force in her not keeping the baby? 
whether it was, you know, pressure from Eric and that's that's why she's so resentful or whether it was actually really sort of her again giving into this need for solitude she talks about that that sent her off to the US in the first place this need to be to be alone. Oof, Deborah, you that's that's like a really tough one, man. Yeah. I think you picked among the harder ways of looking at that. And I but I think what's <laughs> important is that a great piece of fiction always has this space where there is no ability to agree and there's no firm ground. Because I, I find that I wrestle with that question. And the first time that I read this story, I had a different sense of why she may have done it than the most recent time I read the story. It keeps shifting underneath me. It keeps shifting. It's interesting. I asked Edwidge about the story a couple of days ago, and she said that it's one of the few stories that she has a very vivid memory of writing because she was living by herself and making weekly or biweekly trips back to see her parents in Brooklyn and feeling a bit guilty about how much she was enjoying being alone. <laughs> so uh, you have that feeling a little bit under the surface here. Yeah. Uh, another thing that, that's interesting to me is this story was revised somewhat when it went into the uh, collection, The Dewbreaker, and the main change was the question of Eric. It's interesting because one reads the story or one reads his character quite differently in the two cases. In one, he's, he's married, living with his wife and kid and having an affair. And in the other, he's like Nadine in these sort of desperate circumstances. And they're kind of two lonely people finding each other. And it's, it's funny how much it changes how one would read the story. I'm actually very happy for both versions. I think I need Eric to be kind of a cad, and I need him to be simultaneously like someone that we can sort of understand his point of view, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm glad they're both there. If there had only been one version, I, I'm not so sure I would be haunted by this story as much as I am. <laughs> it's interesting. It makes, it makes a case for doing several versions of your own work. God, if you could only do so. <laughs> There's another personal connection in this story. Edwidge had an uncle who lost his voice after a laryngectomy. Uh, he's the subject of her memoir. And he uh, sought asylum in the U.S. and died in, in custody of immigration officials. And I wondered, the way she uses these patients who come to in the hospital and discover that they can't speak even though their lives have been saved, whether they're sort of an allegory for immigrants to the U.S., people who've arrived from desperate circumstances and think they're reaching a haven and then suddenly are, are rendered voiceless. Clearly, it can be and is an allegory, a good metaphor for those transitions. But it's also, I think, an allegory that immigration is itself a troubling echo of all that we face in this world. I think that life has a way of taking you from one world and transporting you into another world where you have no access to your language, where you have no access to all the things that you've known before, all your familiar patterns. Something like a laryngectomy is a perfect example of it. It's interesting that Nadine has also at the same time deliberately cut off her contact with others. You know, she's she's made this transition, and in doing so, she's sort of, she's made it even harder on herself in a way. And um, there's certainly a moment of turnaround in the story when she sees Miss Hines struggling to communicate despite the difficulty. And I, I wonder if you think that's, what inspires her to make those phone calls? Well, but I also think that, you know, we can also understand her silence, her lapse in communication with her parents as like also a survival strategy. 
I mean, I think that sometimes you need to withdraw, even if it seems really harmful as a universal for the moment. It might be the only way that we can come in touch with ourselves, that we can sort of deal with what's happening. Certainly, Ms. Hines sparked her return to communication because whatever she was going through was done. Whatever she had to be, you know, isolated from and just dealing with herself was over. What do you think's driving the the title of the story? Obviously, there's the the pebble in the glass of water, which signifies the lost baby. But it it feels so maybe there's something more than that. Well, you know, I mean, it's one of the great mysteries. I love that about titles like this. <laughs> um, you know, the thought of, in some ways, mourning, venerating, honoring, and marking what is otherwise an absence which this quote-unquote Japanese tradition of the the baby shrine does, I think that that's one that really strikes me for this story. The story is an attempt to pour water over all of these absences, all of these losses, and to somehow make it something that, that we can mark that doesn't just disappear completely in the universe without some sign comes back a little bit to what you were saying about the the seeming simplicity of her language here. Edwidge has written stories which are very lyrical with sort of more of a literary tone, and this one is quite line by line. It doesn't have that affect, you know, more or less in, in keeping with what you would think the, the voice of this character would be. And I just think that sometimes you got to go for counterpoint. There's so much difficult things that are going on here, and I'm not so sure the lyrical or the overly writerly would serve that. I think if she were to make the language different, it would bring in the sort of authorial voice commenting. And what's what's interesting about this story, one of the things, is how much silence there is. And, and as we've said, a, a sort of refusal to comment or explain. And Nadine's isolation doesn't require authorial companionship, you know, authorial company. I think that that's another thing is that because she's so isolated, in some ways, Edwige even kept her isolated from you know, her from her hand, from being too visible as an author on the page. Well, there's something, speaking of language, that, that Edwige does, which you also do, which is dropping into the English flow of your stories, languages from, from Creole, for, from Spanish, and sort of breaking it up and, and sewing these other languages in very naturally. Do you think that serves the story? Well, I always think so. I mean, our reality, the reality of someone like me and Edwige is certainly not the reality of Nabokov's dread monolinguists, but I would argue <laughs> it's not the reality of anyone on the planet. Yeah, I think all of us, whether we only speak one language or we speak 30, we all live in a universe, in a world, in a society where other languages are always finding their way to sit next to us, to put their arms around us, to heckle us. And I think that it's, I feel as a writer, I'm trying to represent a 10-dimensional world with a two-dimensional tool, which is writing. <laughs> you sometimes have to resort to all sorts of little tricks, and one of them is to remind people that more than one language exists. Thank you, Juno. Well, thanks so much for having me, for real, and it's nice to talk to you even for a couple minutes. Juno Diaz is the author of The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, which is published by Riverhead. You can read several of his stories on our website, newyorker.com. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. 
I'm Deborah Treisman. Thank you for listening.